0: What's up, everybody? My name is Dimitri Gafines, and you're listening to Hidden Forces, a podcast that inspires investors, entrepreneurs, and everyday citizens to challenge consensus narratives and to learn how to think critically about the systems of power shaping our world. My guest in this episode of Hidden Forces is Brad Setzer, the Whitney Shepardson Senior Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, where he specializes in global trade and capital flows financial vulnerability analysis, and sovereign debt restructuring. Brad has also served in multiple Democrat administrations as a senior advisor to the US Trade Representative, as Deputy Assistant Secretary for International Economic Analysis at the US Treasury Department, and as a Director for International Economics on the staff of the National Economic and National Security Councils. Brad and I spend the first hour of our conversation discussing what he calls the new geopolitics of global finance and how the political and national security assumptions and priorities that were in many ways taken for granted during the unipolar period from the early 1990s to the second Obama administration are undergoing a series of transformations and how those transformations are increasingly informing economic policymaking and driving changes in the global economy and financial markets. In the second hour, we focus our attention on the Chinese economy, what a viable macroeconomic equilibrium could look like for China given its extraordinarily high savings rate and export-driven growth model, and whether the country can continue to grow without making significant reforms that would increase domestic consumption and reduce the country's structurally high current account surpluses. We also discussed the state of the German economy, the growth of China's export market for electric vehicles, the progress that's been made to de-risk supply chains, industrial policy in the United States and Europe, and much more. If you want access to all of today's conversation, and you're not already subscribed to Hidden Forces, you can join our premium feed and listen to the second hour of today's episode by going to hiddenforces.io slash subscribe. All of our content tiers give you access to our premium feed, which you can listen to on your mobile device using your favorite podcast app, just like you're listening to this episode right now. If you want to join in on the conversation and become a member of the Hidden Forces Genius Community, which includes Q&A calls with guests, access to special research and analysis, in-person events and dinners. You can also do that on our subscriber page. And if you still have questions, feel free to send an email to info at hiddenforces.io and I or someone from our team will get right back to you. And with that, please enjoy this wide ranging and deeply informative conversation with my guest, Brad Setzer. Brad Setzer, welcome to Hidden Forces. Thanks for having me on. It's great having you on, Brad. So before we start, why don't you just tell me a little bit about who you are and in particular, what you're good at, what you do exactly? So I'm an international economist. I've worked
1: some in uh, the financial markets, but most of my work over time has been in the policy world. Uh, I've worked for a long time at the US Treasury. Worked briefly at the IMF, and I think I'm probably best known for kind of tracking financial flows globally, understanding how money moves from the big surplus economies around the world over to the US, since we are the biggest deficit country globally, have been for some time. And so by definition, other countries are financing us. So I've spent a lot of time tracking those flows. But you know I've worked on a whole range of different policy uh proposals over the years. And I also, I guess, take pride in trying to come up with sometimes innovative ideas, not just tracking the money.
0: Well, that's a, a core part of what I wanted to talk to you about today. And there are a number of regions in the global economy like China and Germany in particular that I wanted to delve into. But on a very high level, the reason that I wanted to speak to you, Brad, is because I'm interested in having a conversation about how the underlying political and national security assumptions and priorities of the global economy that were in many ways taken for granted during the unipolar period from say the early 1990s to the second Obama administration are undergoing a series of transformations and how those transformations are increasingly informing economic policymaking and driving changes in the global economy and financial markets. And I want to start by citing something that you wrote in a blog post published shortly after your return from your time working for the the Biden administration titled, The New Geopolitics of Global Finance, where you wrote, quote, the large payment imbalances of the global financial crisis era came back this year. And that raises the question of what new risks, political as well as economic, Are starting to build inside the global financial system. And you even drew a parallel between the demand for subprime risk leading into the 2008 financial crisis with the demand for US interest rate risk today. What are the risks, political and economic, that you think are starting to build or have already been building in the global economy today?
1: Well, I think at the highest level, the argument that I made back then and I I still make is that there's a, a disconnect between the desire to have a world where economic financial trade ties between the big blocks of the global economy, biggest block being let's call it a, a group of democracies aligned with the United States, and the other block, a uh, group of autocracies aligned with China, Russia clearly being the most important member. And then there's sort of countries that view themselves in between, but clearly aren't democracies and clearly have big surpluses like Saudi Arabia, like the other countries in the Gulf. So when you uh, – Think of the political alignment of the world today, a lot of people have observed that those two blocks are hardening, particularly after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, China's policy of providing support, not necessarily military support, but economic and financial support for Russia and diplomatic support for Russia after the invasion. And so there's a desire to at least de-risk those economic and financial ties. On the other hand, if you look at the global economy writ large, the big surpluses right now are all found in autocratic governed economies. Biggest is China. China's trade surplus actually went up a lot during the pandemic. It's a bit lot higher than it was when President Trump started the trade war. You know Russia's surplus fluctuates. It depends on the price of natural gas, the price of oil, but Russia structurally is a surplus country, obviously not an autocracy. And then the Gulf Kingdoms, which you know, aren't quite the same as Russia and Saudi Arabia, but clearly aren't democracies, are the other big source of uh, a net surplus in the global economy. The US is obviously the big net borrower. At times when oil prices are high, Europe's also a net borrower. So over the past five years, we sort of have gone from a world where the U.S. was borrowing a little on net from China, but a lot of the U.S. deficit was financed by Europe, financed by China, to a world where there are bigger deficits, bigger surpluses, and those deficits and surpluses more or less align with democracies and autocracies. So the autocracies have surpluses, the democracies have deficits, you know. How does that generate risk? Well, you could imagine a set of shocks, the most obvious being an invasion of Taiwan by China, where these financial ties would sever suddenly and the global economy would go into a bigger tailspin than if financial flows were better aligned with political alliances. But there are also sort of more subtle risks. One risk is that Because China and Russia aren't all that keen to directly finance the United States, money now flows through the global economy much more opaquely. You can't look at the Central Bank of Russia's balance sheet and see its increasing holdings of treasuries. The Central Bank of Russia is not allowed, thanks to the sanctions, to buy treasuries. You look at the balance sheet of the People's Bank of China, China's reserve managers, you don't see increasing holdings of treasuries either. Obviously, we know that surplus countries have to finance deficit countries. We know there has to be a flow, but that flow is much harder to trace. And so there's at least conceptually the possibility that as that money makes its way to the U.S., someone along the way is accumulating additional risk. And then finally, from kind of a a geostrategic financial competition point of view, A lot of these big autocracies have become big sources of emergency financing. The GCC countries funded President Erdogan in the run-up to his recent election. The Chinese, together with the Saudis, have been supporting Pakistan. So we're we're in a world where the coalition of the advanced economies isn't necessarily the biggest source of financial support for a host of sort of fairly significant middle powers. So maybe you could think of that as a risk. One risk there is that, you know, China ends up cutting these certain countries off. Another risk is that China's financial power pulls countries out of kind of the orbit of the advanced economies. The risks are a little subtle. There's nothing analogous to subprime, but I do think it, it is important to realize that we're in an, a world of significant trade imbalances, a world of significant financial imbalances. And for all the talk of decoupling, the global economy still requires a net flow of Chinese savings into the United States just through more opaque ways.
0: Okay. So just to follow on that, another point that you made in that same blog post was that while the big surpluses that we saw leading up to the great financial crisis are back to similar levels today, everything else is different. Is the biggest difference in your view, the geopolitical competition between the US and China? Is that Really, the big difference here, because it sounds like to me, that in the answer to your previous question, the risks really broke down into two buckets. One of them was kind of traditional financial risks, for example, intermediary risk, and then there was the issue of power and influence, and whether it is, well, I guess one of them was the risk to the global economy of a sudden break, you know, like an invasion Mm -hmm. of Taiwan. But then there was also the the influence, the political influence. Of these countries that don't necessarily align with the United States or with whom the United States is increasingly in conflict. Is that the right way of sort of framing it? Yeah, I think that's a very fair way of framing it, yes. So just to follow on the point about power and influence, one of the, the arguments that say that some economists might make is that sure, the Chinese do run chronic current account surpluses, but at the same time, if they're going to transition from being an export driven growth economy, or if they want to sustain it. Either way, they need the export markets. It's not like the importers just need China. So I guess the question is, is there a way to definitively say who has more power in this relationship? Is it better to always be a a surplus country?
1: No. I mean, I think it's a form of reciprocal interdependence. There are cases when the surplus country needs the demand from the deficit country uh, more than anything else. And then there are times when- the deficit country needs access to financing more than the surplus countries need its demand. For a large country like the U.S., I think it's fair to say that the need for U.S. demand has driven a lot of policies. And that has given the U.S. a certain amount of leverage. But if you think back during the global financial crisis, one of the the key hidden flows, key hidden factors was the fact that going into the global financial crisis, China had invested a lot of its reserves in what are called agency bonds, the uh, mortgage-backed securities with a guarantee from Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Did that give China leverage? Well, to a degree. I mean, the, the U.S. recognized that defaulting on the agencies would be defaulting on China, and that would be a, an enormous shock, not just in a financial sense, but also in a geostrategic sense. It would look like China had invested its money and assets that the U.S. had promised would be safe, and then the U.S. had broken its promise and you know at the time the sums involved were large it was like over 10% of china's gdp was put in agency bonds alone china equally needed the us to backstop the agencies to protect them as the us did in order to make sure that its holdings were safe so the leverage went both ways and the us had other motives for wanting to backstop the agencies. I mean, the agencies are also a critical asset inside the U.S. financial system. But clearly, the fact that China was a huge holder of agencies was a factor. I mean, Hank Paulson makes that 100% clear in his account of the crisis. The harder question is figure out who holds leverage now. In a world where Chinese state actors are not visibly accumulating either U.S. treasuries or U.S. agencies, and where the money flow is much more opaque and in many cases channeled through a function of private Chinese exporters just holding dollars offshore. I'm not sure that generates leverage for China. It could generate risk for the global financial system if Chinese offshore deposits are being invested in long-term bonds. There's kind of a, a potential silicon valley bank type risk from that kind of balance sheet having short-term deposits invested in longer-term bonds conversely if some folks around the global economy are taking chinese exporters dollar deposits and buying short-term u.s bills two-year notes there really isn't much risk so my concern on the financial side now is a little bit more that we just don't understand the mechanics through which Chinese money, through which Russian money ultimately finances deficits in the US and in Europe. Clearly it happens. We know it happens because of the the global current account and how it has to net, but we don't understand the flow. and That just makes me nervous. Whenever there's a hidden flow, you worry that there's a hidden risk. It's a, a known unknown. What is the reason for the opacity? Well, think of the obvious one, the Russia's central bank simply cannot accumulate, thanks to the sanctions, dollars or euros. So Russian foreign asset accumulation has to occur through um, unsanctioned entities, and those unsanctioned entities – the most obvious of which is Gazprom Bank, a big state bank that handles the money flow for Gazprom and Rosneft, the big Russian state oil and gas companies. Gazprom Bank doesn't necessarily want the world to know exactly what it is doing with its money either, because it fears future sanctions. So fundamentally on the Russia side, it's a combination of existing sanctions, the risk of future sanctions, And the development of a new set of offshore intermediaries handling the Russian oil and gas trade that are mostly based in the Middle East, often in Dubai, none of whom has an incentive to be transparent. And they're all based, you know, a lot of the flow is going through jurisdictions like the United Arab Emirates, like Dubai's the key center there, that are themselves not very transparent. On the Chinese side, China made a policy decision back in 2012 that it didn't really need $4 trillion in reserves. It's let its reserves fall down to $3 trillion. And the accumulation of Chinese claims on the global economy has run through a mix of the Chinese state banks, which are complex animals, but they don't register in the U.S. data in the same way that the Chinese central bank did. And then particularly over the past two years, private Chinese money's been wanting to get out of China, and that private outflow is also a lot harder to track. So there's just different reasons for the opacity. But there clearly is more opacity. If you go back to the years before the global financial crisis, you could see surplus countries accumulating foreign exchange reserves that were invested in U.S. treasuries and agencies, and that covered the U.S. current account deficit. Now you see the surplus, you don't see reserve growth, you don't see an inflow from those countries into treasuries and agencies. The inflow into treasuries comes from the UK, the Caymans, Luxembourg, Belgium, offshore financial centers, Singapore. And then you don't easily see a direct correlation between the sources of the US or the global trade imbalance and
0: the financial claims on the US economy. So I think you've written that by your estimates China's total dollar reserves are more like 6 trillion dollars twice the number you cited earlier is that correct? I mean what I
1: called China's shadow reserves are about 3 trillion dollars so if you add the 3 trillion dollars in official reserves to the 3 trillion dollars in shadow reserves you get 6 trillion to be clear not all of those shadow reserves are invested in liquid assets. That includes the enormous illiquid loans of the Chinese policy banks that finance the Belt and Road. That includes the large investments that the China Investment Corporation, China's Sovereign Wealth Fund has made into various private equity funds. And that includes the, it's now a large sum, the $1 trillion on net in the Chinese state commercial banks have lent out to the rest of the global banking system. Chinese state commercial banks are a source of funding for other banks. They're, they have a surplus of dollars. So it includes all the assets, foreign exchange assets, that China has accumulated that don't show up in its official reserves. And those
0: pools of assets collectively are quite big. So I think this kind of like starts to pull on another having you of this conversation that I wanted to get into, which has to do with a narrative that continues to gain popularity, which is that of de dollarization. What do you think of this term, de dollarization? Do you think it actually accurately captures a dynamic that's currently underway? And what evidence is there for? I mean, what do we actually know about the behavior of an economy like China, for example, in terms of their desire to break away from the dollar and or diversify their dollar holdings? What are we actually seeing in the data? That's a a difficult
1: and complex question, although it's one that a lot of people seem to obsess over. I think the first thing to note is that it is a little strange to talk about de-dollarization at a point in time when the dollar is, relative to most global currencies and relative to the Chinese Yuan, incredibly strong. What you see in the market is a bid for dollars. And that bid for dollars is for the obvious reason that dollars yield more than Chinese yuan, than Japanese yen, a bit more than the euro too, although uh, the ECB has been tightening policy rates. So you don't actually see de-dollarization in the sense of reduced global demand for dollars. When people talk about de-dollarization, I think people are thinking about two kind of distinct things. You might call there's a de-dollarization of trade flows, or a potential de-dollarization of trade flows, and then a de-dollarization of the global financial system. They aren't quite the same thing, because if trade is balanced between two parties, they don't end up accumulating financial assets. They just settle in a, a currency. And so the big change in the global economy and that are the motivating factor for some potential changes in the global economy has clearly been the financial aftershocks of of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the associated sanctions both Europe and the US and joined by Japan and others put rather sweeping sanctions on Russia's central bank rather sweeping sanctions on Most of the major Russian banks with a setting Gazprom Bank aside to make sure that there was a mechanism to pay for oil and aluminum and food and so forth. And those sweeping sanctions created an enormous incentive for Russia to change the currency used to denominate its trade. If you go back to 2014, 2015, Russia invaded Crimea, took over the peninsula that had been previously controlled by Ukraine. It's very complex history. But Russia, in a violated international law, took Crimea. And there were substantial sanctions imposed on Russia, both by the US and by Europe. But the perception was that the US was pushing harder. So Russia reacted to that round of sanctions very clearly by moving a, a large part of its trade into the euro. The euro became the currency of choice to denominate Russian oil sales to China. After Europe joined in the sanctions and favored very tough sanctions in 2022, Russia has moved to settling its oil trade with China in yuan. So that is the sense in which there is some evidence of de-dollarization, but also, frankly, de-euroization. Using a currency that is outside the block of the G7 to denominate trade to make it a little bit more remote from the risk of sanctions. And there have been, you know, I think the Iranians have always settled their trade with China and Yuan because of the sanctions. And the Saudis have explored setting up mechanisms to settle their trade with China and Yuan. So There is some evidence of de-dollarization of some key trade flows, but the bulk of global trade is still settled in either dollars or euros. Latin America, if a country in Latin America buys a product from Southeast Asia, they're going to settle that trade in dollars. When Europe trades with Africa, they'll settle that trade in euros. Only trade that directly touches China And only a small portion of the trade that directly touches China settles in yuan. But there is a small increase in the yuan share of global trade. On the financial asset side, there's frankly no evidence that there's been a meaningful shift out of the dollar. The best measure is the bid for the dollar in the foreign exchange market. But when you look at financial flows in and out of China, China is not lending to the rest of the world in yuan. China is lending to the rest of the world in dollars. The Belt and Road was by and large financed in dollars. China's international reserves, which are not, they're only half of its total international assets, they're still 60% in dollars. They were 80% dollars in 2005. They went down to 60% in 2015. And since then, they haven't changed, despite all the talk. I mean, the de-dollarization narrative, which is actually a shift at the margin from dollars to euros in China's case, was much more true from 05 to 2012 than it is now. And then when the Chinese state banks are accumulating assets abroad, they're accumulating dollars. It's quite clear. When Chinese exporters are keeping funds parked offshore in a bank in Singapore, those funds are typically in dollars. If you look at all the measures of global financial flows, you don't see any shift away from the dollar, and you don't see any meaningful change in the dollar share of of global reserves. So uh, there's a lot of poorly informed speculation, lots of it stemming from the fact, a very simple fact, that a a long-term treasury U.S. dollar denominated treasury fell 15% in dollar terms in 2022 because of the um, increase in U.S. interest rates. So all sorts of measures of the dollar value of existing dollar bonds fell. If you had a money invested in a mutual fund that held long-term treasuries, you would have seen that fall. And those international investors who hold treasuries or agencies also saw the reported value of those claims fall. But that's just a mark to market change. It is not a shift out of the dollar. So I think there was a lot of confusion created by people equating changes in valuation with actual financial flows.
0: Yeah. And I don't want to linger on this point too much, but you know, one observation, I do think that what people tend to mean, whether they recognize it or not, when they talk about de-dollarization or loss of dollar or hegemony, is what they're really talking about is a feeling, and a feeling that somehow the United States is losing or falling behind, or that our preeminence is being usurped by China. So, I think that's part of what people are trying to enunciate when they actually talk about de-dollarization. But just one more question here, because I think it is, while it's something that gets, I agree, way more play than it deserves, it regardless does get a lot of people's attention. And I want to try to use this opportunity to maybe help give people a better sense of what the discrepancies are here that we're talking about. What do you think it is? What is incomplete About the way that people talk about the dollar's role internationally. Is it that they also don't simultaneously talk about the balance of trade and the balance of military power? What is it? Is it a kind of a disconnected conversation? How would you critique it if you had to try to summarize it? I think
1: I would critique it from several different angles. I think there is a tendency to exaggerate how much America power hinges on using the dollar to settle every trade in the global economy. The way some people talk about it, there would be a loss in U.S. influence if, you know, there should have been a loss in U.S. influence when Poland joined the European Union and trade between Germany and Poland started to be denominated in euros rather than in dollars. To my mind, that shift has absolutely no fundamental impact on the United States. So I I think there is a sense in which every transaction in the world that is not conducted in dollars is sometimes viewed as a threat to the US, a threat to the US ability to finance its deficits, a threat to the US ability to fund its military, which is, is simply not true. Uh, so I think that's the first confusion. There's there's an exaggerated view of the impact of the currency of denomination of certain trade flows. Like to go back to the earlier example when Russia moved to the Euro instead of the dollar to denominate its trade with Russia. Some people would say, oh, it's a dominion big negative for the United States. In practice, it had no impact. There are some scenarios when it diminishes the reach of U.S. sanctions, when you get technical about it, but that it doesn't fundamentally have a huge impact. I think the other big misconception that I see is that people have equated a decision by Saudi Arabia and China not to add to their foreign exchange reserves to a decision to shift out of the dollar. When in reality, it was a decision to have other entities in Saudi Arabia, their sovereign wealth fund, the public investment fund, accumulate a different kind of dollar asset to buy U.S. stocks rather than just to have the central bank buy U.S. treasuries. Same thing in China. The absence of any growth in China's reserves doesn't mean that China's shifting out of the dollar. It just means that dollars are being accumulated in different parts of the Chinese economy, by the state banks, by the China Investment Corporation. And then finally, I think there's a a sort of a very, very technical issue, which is that if you look at one line item that is reported in an obscure data release by the U.S. Treasury Department, the data is on foreign holdings of U.S. Treasury bonds reported by their market value. If you look at that line item and just look at China. It looks like China's holdings of treasuries have been pretty much declining continuously since 2012, and that there's been an acceleration in that decline in the past two years. And there, I think it's just important to realize what's left out of the data. A portion of the recent decline is just a a mark-to-market decline. A portion, though, of the decline is because China only registers in this particular data series If it uses a U.S. custodian, if it's uh, using the New York Fed's custodial facility, if it's using State Street's facilities, there are important custodial facilities in Belgium, Luxembourg, London, and a few other global financial centers. And if China is holding its treasuries in an offshore custodian, what registers in the U.S. data is an increase in holdings of the country that is home to the custodian. The data doesn't look through to see the ultimate owner. And there's really clearly been a big increase in Belgium's holdings in particular in a way that correlates with changes in China's reserves. So you kind of have to look a little bit beyond the China number to see what China is really doing. The issue of custodial bias is real. If China wanted to, it could hold all of its treasuries, in offshore custodians and nothing would show up in the US as some countries actually do. And then finally, there's a sort of a a tendency to forget that China doesn't just hold treasuries. China's government actually has a big portfolio of agency bonds. They bought close to 100 billion of agencies uh, in 2022. That flows a little lower now, but the key thing is you gotta look beyond treasuries. China's government actually has a pretty big portfolio of US stocks. So if you just look at the treasury flow and just look at the line for China, you'll think that China is just pulling money out of the US treasury market and pulling money out of the US and pulling money out of the dollar. And in reality, at least in my judgment, China is just shifting the kind of asset it holds and just shifting the way it holds the asset, the custodian, rather than actually moving out of the dollar. And you know, the best evidence of that is, look, the dollar is strong. It's not just strong against the yuan, it's strong against the euro, it's strong against the yen. If China were really diversifying,
0: you would see those things change. So on that note, there has been a concerted effort by the US to de chinify or de its supply chains. And similarly, I think there's been an effort on the part of the Chinese to do something to make their economy as self-sufficient, resilient as possible to foreign disruptions. How has that been going? How has trade between the US and China and China and the rest of the world materially changed in the last say six years? Well, I think you can
1: make a case that China's further along in de-risking its supply chains than, than the US is in de-risking its supply chains, but you know, it really becomes a very micro analysis very quickly. So, if you ask what has changed over the past six years, I would start by saying looking at the global data. and If you look at China's data, what has changed over the last six years is that it's exporting an awful lot more. China's exports as a share of GDP, I like to look at them as uh, after netting out imported components. But they've gone from, say, 12% of China's GDP to 15% of China's GDP. So China, in aggregate, is is exporting more. So it's becoming a bigger source of global supply. Of course, equally fair to say that China's relying more on the rest of the world for demand. China's trade surplus in manufactured goods has gone from maybe 6% of its GDP to maybe 10% of its GDP, also gone up. On the other side of the ledger, the US trade deficit, particularly in dollar terms, a little less so as a share of GDP, has also gone up. During the pandemic, we imported tons and tons and tons of goods, so many goods that our ports couldn't handle them because when everyone was stuck at home, everybody wanted a new home appliance, wanted a new computer, and that clearly showed up. So what's happened actually in the aggregate data is that China has become a bigger source of supply to the whole world and China's overall economy has become structurally more dependent on exports. And I insist on that because that is often forgotten. There's a sense that China and the US are somehow decoupling and that China is somehow decoupled from the world economy. That is absolutely not true. China is running the largest trade surplus, the largest manufacturing trade surpluses in modern economic history. What has happened as a result of the tariffs and some of the uh, other measures that have been introduced is that on one hand, China is making an enormous effort. Started six years ago, but more money is going in. The reasons for it are more obvious. To kind of build up its own semiconductor industry so it doesn't have to rely on either imported designs or imported chips. Making some progress, but fundamentally, China still relies on imported chip designs, you know, the AMD processors, the Qualcomm chips. But, you know, Huawei's trying to get rid of the Qualcomm chips. And it still relies on uh, semiconductors made in Taiwan, made in South Korea. It hasn't. Fully succeeded, but directionally, in response to increasing sanctions, China's making a huge national effort to try to reduce its dependence on imported semiconductors. The US, after the tariffs, bilateral trade with China fell. It kind of recovered a bit during the height of the pandemic as you know, everybody bought more consumer goods, and now it's falling again. So as a share of US trade, trade with China is down. I think a lot of people think that means the US has made progress in de-risking its trade with China, but that's, I think, a superficial analysis. What you really see is that China's exporting a lot of parts and components to Southeast Asia, Vietnam in particular, and the US is importing a lot of final goods, computers and the like, furniture, with a lot of Chinese components from Southeast Asia, and thereby you get around the tariffs. That said, the U.S. is starting to make much more serious efforts to de-risk its supply chains. That involves building up alternative sources of supply to China for the chemical components that go into uh, an electric vehicle battery. That involves building up alternative sources of the precursors to a solar panel, the wafers and the like. That involves finding alternative sources to China for so-called rare earths, which are uh, very specific minerals that have a number of applications. Some are defense-related. They're important components of radars. They make radars work better. And that's very public. It's in various U.S. government reports. And then they also have a a big role in electric vehicles and wind turbines, and on a smaller scale they're an additive to make gasoline burn cleaner. But all the world's rare earth processing capacity for a while was in China. And now there's efforts to build up mines outside China, to build chemical processing facilities outside China, to build capacity to make permanent magnets outside of China. So you just have to go through a set of different products and look at how the U.S. is trying to invest in supply chains that don't run through China for key goods. Finally, the one where the U.S. is making the most progress is in making the biggest investments is in semiconductors. And it's sort of strange because both the U.S. and China feel the need to de-risk a bit in semiconductor space. You know, China's worried about its reliance on U.S. semiconductor companies for chip-making equipment, for imported designs, while the U.S. is worried that its actual capacity to manufacture so-called fabs or fabrication to physically make the chips was deteriorating, and too much of the capacity globally to make advanced chips was concentrated in Taiwan, vulnerable to interruption in the event of a geopolitical crisis and too much of the capacity to build legacy chips, lagging technology chips, which are used in a lot of automotive applications. I mean, they're not like the cutting edge chips go into phones, but you you need cheap, older chips to make a washing machine, to make a car. So the lagging edge is still important. And the US was worried that the lagging edge was concentrated in China, the leading edge was concentrated in Taiwan, and US chip manufacturing capabilities were falling behind. So uh, the CHIPS Act throws a lot of money, we hope successfully, into building up a stronger manufacturing ecosystem around semiconductors in the US. So um, there are efforts underway to de-risk specific sectors. But in aggregate, you know, if the world is relying on Chinese manufacturing to the extent that it is now, you're not going to be fully decoupled. And equally, a China that's running a large trade surplus, actually until the past few months, a growing trade surplus, record large trade surplus and has a bigger current account in my view than is formally reported. That China has not decoupled from the demand that comes from the rest of the world. So Going back to your earlier question, all these complexities are not only interesting, but they highlight both the fact that there still is a lot of interdependence and that people are also equally worried about the potential vulnerabilities created by this interdependence. So we're left with a world where the cost of reducing interdependence are real, and there's a, an ongoing debate about how to set in place uh, processes to reduce that interdependence and also how to pay for it. And in some cases,
0: there have been more progress than ECI, in other cases, less. So I do want to, at some point, get into a conversation about China's economy and what a viable macroeconomic equilibrium would look like in China, given just how much- of their economy is driven by exports and how much they save. I think they save something around forty-five percent of GDP, which is enormous. But I have one more question about this sort of like de-risking and building up of resiliency in in each country's domestic economy. Semiconductors are unique in that the U.S. was a pioneer in chip design and manufacturing, and still retains a significant share of the intellectual capital. And U.S. companies still play an important part in the global semiconductor supply chain. We even have integrated device manufacturers in this country like Intel, that's not the same for other industries in which we used to be dominant. What is your sense of the scale of this challenge and where and what would it take in your view for the US to realistically build resiliency in its own critical supply chains where it's lost a significant edge, not just semiconductors?
1: Well, I would say you're a tad more optimistic than I am about US capabilities and semiconductors. I think, Theo, over time, the US has gone from making 40% of the world's ships to making 15%, so less than we actually use. And I think a lot of the concern that developed in the U.S. around the chip industry has stemmed from the fact that Intel is quite clearly lagging TSMC, the leading Taiwanese producer, and clearly lagging Samsung. So the cutting edge of chip manufacturing is no longer in the U.S. There are cutting edge companies in chip design and chip design tools in uh, the um broader ecosystem and the bulk of profits tend to go to the designers, not the manufacturers. But in a technical sense, the US had actually started to lag in semiconductors. So The most important and realistic goal is to bring US semiconductor manufacturing capabilities back to the frontier. I think that'll reduce a broader sense of vulnerability and reduce the possibility that China catches up to the US, because it's easier to catch up to the US when the US isn't at the frontier. In other sectors, you know, I think if you thinking about autos is instructive and helpful. In autos, you know, the US does rely on China for some parts, but the the US is not currently dependent on China for autos. The concern, though, is that if you shift it to electric vehicles, which uses different technologies, obviously, and where the battery is uh, of vital importance, that shift to electric vehicles might be a shift to Chinese supply. So, another, I think, realistic goal is to do the shift to electric vehicles and maintain strong domestic U.S. production of new, cleaner cars. Similarly, a realistic goal is to pick a set of pharmaceutical products where the underlying chemical or the underlying active ingredient, some key antibiotics, for example, are overwhelmingly manufactured in China. And just building up the capacity to make a decent amount of essential medicines often cheap essential medicines, like the expensive new ones are all all made in Ireland or Singapore or some other uh, low-tax jurisdiction. It's the generics where there's dependence on China. And so I think it is viable to build up capacities there. I think it is viable to build up a US permanent magnet manufacturing base, probably essential given that Permanent magnets do actually have significant applications in the defense sector. What is much harder is to onshore or even uh, nearshore electronics assembly. That's generally going to be done in Southeast Asia, not the US. You could friendshore it, but that's not quite nearshoring it. And I would say the same for a host of other products that the US economy doesn't make and significant quantities. but So what I think is realistic is to pick a clear set of products, make those priorities. Don't just rely on tariffs. You actually have to invest in your own capacity, which means subsidies. It means using some of the defense dollars in sectors where there's a a defense need, using some uh, pandemic resilience dollars in sectors where there's a medical need and really building out production capability inside the US or inside very close allies to address defined vulnerabilities. You're still going to miss some things and you're going to still be relying on China for basic consumer goods, but I think that's a vulnerability that the US can live with.
0: China has to make a similar set of calculations and I think it is. So I have one question, one more question about semiconductors, but since you brought this up, is there some way to assess which economy is more vulnerable to disruption? Or are we so interconnected that it would be just inestimably bad for either the US or China to find themselves in a war? It would just be
1: inestimably bad for the US and China to find themselves in a war that leads to a severing of economic and trade flows.
0: Do you have a view on how that impacts the likelihood that we would actually find ourselves in such an entanglement?
1: I think if both parties are rational, it should reduce the probability. There isn't a scenario where China successfully takes over Taiwan and where it keeps its international reserves. So if you think about it, any scenario where China takes Taiwan, it loses an enormous sum of money. Does that determine Xi's views? I mean national security issues are classically issues where issues of economic cost and financial loss are subordinate to national security claims. So it's not a fail-safe deterrent, but I do think it would be exceptionally costly. China could also fairly point out that uh, a firm like Apple, the most valuable company in the United States by a significant margin, cannot currently manufacture its profitable phones without Chinese components, and in most cases without Chinese assembly. So uh, in the event of a full severing of trade and financial ties, there are larger financial losses in China, but there are big U.S. firms that simply can't continue to operate as they do now that have to build entirely new supply chains. And there are no doubt parts of the U.S. economy where some critical component is coming from China. Maybe it's a, a chip that everyone that was invented 20 years ago, and it just does one specific function. But if you don't have that chip, you can't build a, an expensive, complicated product. And so until you engineer a new source of this chip, the production of various uh, goods would just kind of dry up. I mean there was there's a famous example of this during the pandemic. And the the source of disruption was the pandemic. But it turns out that the manufacturers of Whirlpools, the controls, the circuit board that controls the Whirlpool is made in China. So if production in China was shut down because of a COVID outbreak, production of Whirlpools in the US stopped because you didn't have this key component. Yeah. And I think you'd find those examples throughout the economy. So I think you just have to assume the costs are massive. They're probably bigger for China than for the US, but I'm not sure that is sufficient as a deterrent.
0: I've used also the example of the F-35 fighter that I believe had a, a magnet that was produced in China and they had to shut down production once they figured that out, which just goes to show you not just how interconnected everything is, but that there isn't anyone that actually knows, has the full picture. Of just what's being sourced where. Because to your point, also, it isn't, you can get around tariffs by doing the end manufacturing outside of China, but there's still tons of component parts that were produced that are Chinese. Right. Look, we live
1: in a world where roughly one third of global manufacturing output comes from China, and roughly half of that is exported. So you're going to find Chinese components everywhere. China lives in a world where the bulk of its offshore financial wealth is still invested in the U.S. dollar and China's economy doesn't work well if it has to rely on its own internal demand. So China would lose enormously in the event of a a sudden decoupling.
0: Yeah, I feel like a comparison that I've fallen back on numerous times now is it's like the U.S. and China are in a marriage and they're no longer in love. They hate each other but they're trying to figure out if they want to divorce and they're trying to figure out if it makes financial sense or if it would be so financially painful that they're better off just living separately but not getting divorced you know that's kind of what it feels like i don't know if, that, if you think that's an appropriate uh, analogy but you know to go back to just to close off this loop on semiconductors one of the the recent pieces of news and we're going to do an episode on this as well is the Huawei Mate 60 Pro powered by ZMIX. that stands for Semiconductor Manufacturing International Corporation, China's partially state-owned pure play mm-hmm. semiconductor foundry company, powered by Smic's newly developed seven nanometer chip. Now, the people that I've spoken to say this shouldn't really have been a surprise. Maybe the the yield, and it's still unclear what the yield is on these new chips, that might have surprised people. Certainly the the competency maybe of China's semiconductor ecosystem, but just the, the fact that they could produce a seven nanometer chip. Without access to EUV lithography machines, by just relying on the deep ultraviolet lithography machines that they have from ASML, shouldn't have been a surprise to anyone. So I guess my question is what is the significance of this breakthrough? Is I guess what it's being called. And what does it say about the effectiveness of the export controls that the Biden administration put into effect and whether or not they need to be strengthened?
1: Look, I, I don't I don't have full information about what exactly China has successfully produced, as you said, the yield, whether China is somewhat exaggerating the capabilities of this new chip or not. What I think it does is that it it highlights that, you know, in some sense it strengthens the case for blocking China's access to the extreme ultraviolet lithography machines that TSMC, Samsung, Intel are now now using Intel is trying to master for the the true cutting edge chips which are even smaller. Keeping that technology it comes from a Dutch firm I think ASML but with you know enormous inputs from the US and enormous inputs from Germany so it's not just Dutch. Keeping China from mastering that technology would be is sort of necessary to keep the US, Taiwan, Korea several generations ahead of Chinese chip production. So if your goal is to maintain an advantage and you think that advantage is important for the military balance, denying China the extreme ultraviolet lithography machines is actually uh, important. I think the second thing to note is that you know it is reasonable to expect that China is going to A, throw enormous sums into trying to replicate that technology using whatever means it can, and that too china is going to stretch the previous generation of of machines of semiconductor manufacturing machines to their absolute limit and they may innovate and they may succeed and some of those chips are going to be really quite powerful i mean china is now producing the kind of chips that were in our cell phones from 4 or 5 years ago and you know i frankly still use those that phone the lagging generations of chips were Wonders when they first came out. They're exceptionally powerful, and China—you know—money is no object. China is clearly determined to try to catch up, and it's unrealistic to think that China is going to stay static. You know whether there's a specific innovation or edge that China has just shown in this particular chip, and whether you need to tighten the export controls or other restrictions to kind of China try to set China back in this effort. That would require more information than I have.
0: Do you have a how about let me ask you it a different way? Do you have a view on whether or not the administration or people that are working on this issue feel that enough is being done to stimulate and support domestic investment in this space? To your point that you can't just expect, and I think it would have been silly, and I hope no one actually thought this was true, that you would just be able to focus on trying to Hold China down and while at the same time not innovating and advancing here at home. Do you feel like the consensus is that more effort needs to be done on the former? In other words, on stimulating innovation and helping parts of the domestic semiconductor industry catch up and onshoring or reshoring more of those supply chains than on, say, tightening the export controls? I think
1: the administration, and I was obviously a part of it, is enormously proud of the fact that they've been able to get the bipartisan support for the CHIPS Act, that there is a very significant pool of money now available to support investments in the U.S. And frankly, it's not just a new wave of innovation, although that is important. It is catching up to the current frontier. The U.S. was lagging you know the US was not producing extreme ultraviolet lithography intel was not doing it so there's a wave of investment in the US from intel from tsmc from samsung not using the the cutting edge but from micron from others that has been induced by the incentives in the chips act so i don't i think there's a sense that it's not that the US now needs more money or needs to Do more. The sense is that the US needs to use the significant funds that have been appropriated and deploy them effectively and to make sure that, to the extent the US government can, because ultimately it hinges on the chip manufacturers themselves, proving that you can produce at the cutting edge in the US and making that into a successful business. But the implementation is now critical. If there's a worry, I think the worry is that the US has put more resources into chips than it has produced, put into some of the less sexy but also important other sectors where there are still dependent. So I worry that we haven't done a CHIPS Act for active pharmaceutical ingredients. It wouldn't take as much money, but you probably need some some kind of production support to really uh, accelerate progress there. But the administration is proud of the huge investments that are being made in semiconductors. And frankly, I think support for the chip sector is now um, very bipartisan. The CHIPS Act was a bipartisan bill, truly bipartisan. And I think there is a consensus across both parties and the military and amongst key civilian business leaders that advanced chip manufacturing, not just design, is one industry where it is vital that the US stay at the cutting edge.
0: So Brad, I'm going to move us to the second hour. And I want to focus that time on China's economy delving more into that, and also what's going on in Europe and in particular, Germany. And I think that's going to give us a chance to talk about electric cars, and the news that China recently overtook Japan as the largest car exporter in the world, driven in large part by their dominance in electric vehicles and in the EV supply chain. For anyone who is new to the program, Hidden Forces is listener supported. We don't accept advertisers or commercial sponsors. The entire show is funded from top to bottom by listeners like you. If you want access to the second hour of today's conversation with Brad, head over to hiddenforces.io slash subscribe and sign up to one of our three content tiers. All subscribers gain access to our premium feed, which you can use to listen to the rest of today's conversation on your mobile device using your favorite podcast app, just like you're listening to this episode right now. Brad, stick around. We're going to move the second hour of our conversation onto the premium feed. If you want to listen in on the rest of today's conversation, head over to hiddenforces.io slash subscribe and join our premium feed. If you want to join in on the conversation and become a member of the Hidden Forces Genius community, you can also do that through our subscriber page. Today's episode was produced by me and edited by Stilianos Nicolaou. For more episodes, you can check out our website at hiddenforces.io. You can follow me on Twitter, at Kofinas, and you can email me at info at hiddenforces.io. As always, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.